with the invention of microscopes and telescopes, leading to an explosion in scientific knowledge. Belief in God became unnecessary, more so told. But our faith in science really at all? Join us to discover if physics and biology, cosmology and evolution are enemies of faith or if they are actually allies. God and Science, a series at Stapleton Church. All right, everybody, I'm so glad you're here. Um, in addition to giving, because that's so important, if you've noticed that we've been growing a little bit as a church, we've been growing over the last few months, um, including just a couple of weeks ago, we had like 150 more people on that Sunday than we did this summer. Um, so that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, you can applaud that. But I want to ask you, in addition to, to in giving to this church, I want to ask you to do a few simple things. Okay, first off, if you're able, come to our night service. Um, if you're saying, hey, I could go to either one, come to our night service, because that makes rooms for our first two services at 9 and 1045, which are a little more popular right now. We're just getting that night service rolling. So if you can... Commit to the night service. A couple other even more simple things you can do. Move up. What? Yes. Do you know the best seats in the house are the ones in the back? Let's be honest. We get it. That's where if somebody's sneaking in for the first time, they're sitting in the back. They're not coming up into the front sitting up here, okay? Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. So if you can, move up a little bit, okay? Just move up a row or two or the very front row like these two brave souls, okay? That could help a lot. Give somebody a seat towards the back. Here's another thing you could do. Park farther away. Hmm, we have a very tiny parking lot for this building. I get it, okay? If you can, park as far away as possible and walk. It's a good exercise too, right? I know we're talking winter months, but we're expecting big things in December and January. That's when we typically see a bump in attendance, and we've seen it in November this year. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. Um, We'd appreciate it a lot. Those are simple, right? Okay, thank you guys for considering those. Thanks. Okay, evolution. You guys ready for this message? God and science. Evolution. So, when we talk about evolution, we usually look back to the origination of this theory of how life came to this planet and how it emerged to what we have now. And this was started, of course, by the famous man Charles Darwin, who in 1835 went to some tiny islands that nobody would have ever heard of, west of South America, the Galapagos Islands. We know that he went there and he studied the animal and the plant life there. And as a great scientist, he observed things and he noticed that there were these birds, the finches, and they're, of course, the most popular of the animals he studied, the most famous. And he noticed that these birds that they had come there maybe some two, three million years prior had begun to adapt and evolve to meet the surrounding environments. Because each of the islands was so different on this string of islands, That in each environment, the birds had learned and adapted, maybe learned isn't the right word, adapted to those environments. Depending on what the food was there, maybe the beaks of these birds grew longer or wider. Some of the birds lost the ability to fly. And from possibly one central bird that first went there, this first finch, there are some maybe a dozen or 16 species now. He took that observation and said, okay, looking at that and looking at some of the other things we know about our natural world, studying biology and archaeology, botany and the like, that we can extrapolate out from there that perhaps everything has a common descent. Meaning every species on the whole planet, if you trace it back far enough, it's just one creature or one cellular thing. 
so I want to show you this, this um, time scale. And these time scales are widely debated, and I'm, I'm not even saying that this is the right one or anything. But this is just a general view of what this theory entails. So if the earth was first formed four and a half billion years ago, and if you're wondering about the age of the earth, watch last week's message at stapletonchurch.com under the media tab. And the Q&A from that night. It was really good. You should check that out. We had some great expert scientists. And then somewhere around three and a half billion years ago, first single cell organisms emerged. And then maybe two billion years ago, those single cells evolved into multicellular organisms and then into plants and then into fish and then into animals on land. And then finally, about seven million years ago, into Homo sapien. And this, uh, this family tree or this biological tree, evolutionary tree, whatever you want to call it, it, it changes a lot depending on who you're talking to. But this is generally the theory of evolution. You guys probably were taught this in school, learned this, have studied this. You've seen this. Maybe you've even seen, you know, the monkey, the chimpanzee all of a sudden emerging after a few steps into the upright man. This is all considered the theory of evolution. Now, what's fascinating is that Charles Darwin, who, who wrote his Origin of the Species uh, back in the 1850s, knew nothing about DNA, which is incredible because in the 1950s and 1960s, when DNA was discovered and uh, Francis Crick and Watson discovered that it was this helical form and, and there was these four different letters and when they put it all together, they said, ha, now we know what's going on in these adaptations, right? As further study and there's been further experiments since then. What's fascinating, and if I could kind of just describe this theory of evolution with a definition that I'm going to use for the rest of my message, it would be this. And this is from a letter written to the New York Times by some 35 Nobel laureate biologists to say, hey, this is what we describe as evolution today because it actually has changed quite a bit since Darwin's day. So when I talk about evolution, this is what I'm going to mean today. This is what they say, that evolution is understood to be the result of an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection. This, according to our leading biologists, is the definition of evolution. So if you have a different definition, this is what I'm talking about, okay? I'm not talking about what you're talking about. This is what I'm talking about, okay? You guys with me? An unguided, unplanned process of two things, random variation and natural selection. Random variation and natural selection. So random variation, these birds, uh, all of a sudden, now we know through a genetic mutation, these birds grow a longer beak or a wider beak or lose the ability to fly or, or those kind of things. That random variation happens. And then if those beaks make them better at eating certain things on those islands, for the example of Darwin's finch, the natural selection, it just so happens that they can survive and not die off, right? So these two things are happening, random variation and natural selection. And I want to point out that just those last two things, random variation and natural selection, nearly everyone agrees on. Okay, so we can start there and say, hey, we can agree on this before we get to the point where people are going to get disagreeing about things and I'm going to make everyone mad. Yeah, pray for me today. We can agree on that. We see this happening. We've observed it. If you've ever seen a dog, you know this happens. Now, that's not unguided, but I'm saying the last two things. As we breed dogs, we realize we can breed them in order to be bigger or have a better sniffing ability for hunting or, or whatever these different uh, adaptations that we want. Uh, that's, of course, not natural selection, but we see natural selection with things like the finches or in places like Africa, where Lake Victoria, we know, was actually dried out 15,000 years ago. And now there's this type of 
fish in the lake called cichlids that even though 1,500 years ago, 15,000 years ago, I'm sorry, there were no fishes there. Now there are over 1,000 different species of these cichlids. Interesting, right? So we know that random variation in natural selection happens. We can all agree on that. It's the second line that get people fired up, right? Because what evolution is taught by the leading scientists of our day in, in high school, what I learned in, in college, is this idea that evolution is actually an unguided and unplanned process. So that is what we're talking about today. Because that has implications for us today. Religious implications. Think about this. This has led people like Charles Darwin originally to write, there seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. This is unguided, unplanned. There is no design. Last week we talked about design, right? We said there's pretty good scientific evidence that there is design in the universe and in the earth itself. But here Charles Darwin says, hey, no, 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 evolution shows there is no more design. The wind is the same thing. And taking this even a step further, our biologists of today, evolutionists like Douglas, I'm not going to pronounce that wrong, so I'll just say Douglas, who said Darwin's concept of natural selection made this argument from design, which we talked about last week, the argument from design completely superfluous. In other words, we don't need God anymore. Evolution did everything. You with me? What is taught now by our leading biologists, and I had a whole bunch more quotes, I'm just going to show you that one, from evolutionary biologists teaching today, is that we don't need God. Evolution is enough. You guys with me? And I want to break that myth wide open today. I'm just going to be honest. I want to break that myth wide open because evolution is not enough. It's not enough. And I know I'm going to offend everybody today. I've probably already offended, offended half of you, and I'm going to offend the other half in just a few minutes. Uh, and my point here is not to say evolution did not exist. I've already said we can agree that there's some evolution going on as long as we're talking about those adaptation and natural selection. But what I am going to argue today is that evolution is not enough in itself. That it cannot explain away God. It fails miserably, even if your biology teacher won't fess up to it. And I'm going to talk about that today. And honestly, this is a lot different than what I, was going to, I thought I was going to be teaching just a couple months ago on this message. I knew this was going to be the hardest one. I studied more for this message than maybe any in my life. And I know I'm going to get some of the biology and genetics and chemistry wrong. Okay, please forgive me. The, the exact details, uh, I might get a little wrong. If you're interested, you can go back tonight where we actually have someone who has a PhD in this area that you can ask him questions. And I already talked with him. I said, are you okay with this? And he said, yeah, yeah, let them, let them ha- ask me whatever questions they want, okay? So come back tonight. You can even text in those questions if you're feeling them today and watch online if you can't physically be here. Um, but in this series, God and Science, what, what I'm arguing and what I'm putting together, that God and science, faith, and all the scientific study we've done over the last few hundred years, that they are actually not at war. They shouldn't be at war, even though sometimes they are, right? They shouldn't be at war. They are even allies and mutually reinforcing. In the first week in our series, we learned that actually uh, God tells us to study science, <laughs> Psalm 19, and science should lead us to God. 
and a worship of Him. And we saw this abundantly clear last week, I believe, as we looked at two arguments from science and reason, because you've got to have both of those things. And when you t- put both of those together, what you actually see is that, um, that things like the Big Bang, a beginning of the universe, actually point to the fact that there was a cause to the universe. That nothing we know logically begins to exist without a cause, and if the universe began to exist, therefore it must have a cause. And we talked about how that cause needs to be a someone, even. And then we moved on even more focused to this fine-tuning argument, that if you look at the universe, and more particularly our planet, it seems so against the odds that the universe would exist, let alone human life, intelligent life on a planet, that it has to be so fine-tuned, once again, pointing to a designer, and we know that this designer, or at least we think this designer is God, the God of the Bible. So that's what we've seen now in two weeks. But now I'm kind of pointing to maybe the hardest thing for those who are believers, dealing with this idea of evolution. Because if Darwin and those leading um, geneticists and biologists that are teaching evolution today are right, we don't need God explain life at all and that seems to contradict pretty blatantly genesis chapter one which we'll get to in our message so how do these things fit together how do these things fit together and and what i'm going to argue today is that evolution is not capable of writing off god in fact there are four and maybe there's a fifth one that we're going to see in our video interview but it was too much beyond me to explain so i'm just saying four there are four major problems with the theory of evolution okay four major problems that cannot explain away God. Okay, you guys ready for that? There are four things that evolution is incapable of explaining, or at least well. Pretty fails, I think fails pretty miserably. So the first one, if you're taking notes, is that evolution doesn't explain the emergence of life. Starting with the big one. Evolution does not explain the emergence of life. Now, if you are a biologist... You would say, well, well, Matt, that's not even part of evolutionary theory. You're right. You're right. This goes beyond evolution. Evolution is the process. Once life emerged, what happens to it, right? Exactly the point. So where did life come from? Where did life come from? And it's not just evolutionary biology that cannot say anything about the emergence of life. It's chemistry as well. Because what we're talking about there with the emergence of life is chemistry. And that's why some of the biologists kind of struggle once you get there, because it's chemistry. The chemists struggle to explain biology. The biologists struggle to explain chemistry. And I'm neither. So I'm just trying. (laughs) But what I talk about the emergence of life is that how did life emerge in the first place? Even that first single cellular organism. Here's the thing. The more scientific advancement we've had, it's actually harder to explain. We've gotten farther and farther and farther away from the explanation. Now, you may have learned in school that there was this grand experiment back in the 1950s um, that was the Miller-Urey experiment. Very famous. This famous experiment that these, these scientists said, hey, could we go back and try to recreate the environment of the original atmosphere of our planet with enough methane and nitrogen and hydrogen? I don't know all those chemicals, but... They were just theorizing, what if it was like this? And we put that in basically a vacuum chamber, and and we know that there's lightning. Lightning produces electricity. So let's just say we zap this thing with electricity, these chemicals that are flowing around in the vacuum chamber. What is going to happen? Could we create life? Boom, they created something. Incredible. This is an awesome experiment if you go back and look at it. Now, people say it's widely discredited, but I think it's pretty awesome. (laughs) 
Because what they did when, when these different gases and, and chemicals were present and exactly with electricity, it actually created some amino acids. Okay? And this is the part where I'm, hopefully I can get the details right. Got my notes for me today. Now this is, this is pretty incredible because amino acids are the building blocks of life. This is organic matter in its simplest forms. And these amino acids, now it's debated how many amino acids were created there, but it's pretty impressive. So from that, we can extrapolate that therefore natural processes created life, right? Wrong. Because the amino acids that were created there um, were only some. And, and in order to just have one protein, which is actually the building block of life, in order to just have one protein, it takes hundreds of amino acids, different kinds, and much more complex kinds than the simple ones that were formed in this experiment. To make matters worse, you don't just need proteins. You need carbohydrates and lipids. And for one simple, the simplest carbohydrate we have is six different building blocks. And those six different building blocks have to fit into the others at just the right perfect angle. And actually, the amount of connector points for two different building blocks of carbohydrates are billions of options. So you have to get those building blocks lined up just right. And for that one simple carbohydrate to form, it is 12 trillion different combinations. And you need just the perfect one for just one carbohydrate. And that doesn't include the lipids or the DNA and RNA that would be needed just to make one cell. And the simplest cell we have today has some 20,000 base pairs of genes. Okay? Remember those letters we were talking about? A, G, T, C. They have to be lined up just right. 20,000 of them have to be perfect. So you have to have the DNA. I'm not even talking about the RNA. And you've got to have all these amino acids and all the proteins and everything. All of that has to be all perfect in one second in order to form one cell. Okay, see how Miller-Urey didn't quite make it? And why, since the 1950s when this experiment was run, we've made no progress. We have sent a man to the moon. We have cell phones. We have the internet. We have made zero progress on this. Instead, the more we study it and we get down to the microscopic level, we know that it's even harder than we thought. It's harder than we thought to do this. And to make that experiment worse, not only were these <laughs> amino acids uh, produced, but so was a whole bunch of poison that actually destroys those same building blocks that just emerged. So who gets rid of the poison? How does that happen so that we can build it? And if you say, well, if we had enough time, time is actually a problem for this equation. Because everything has to be present at the same time. If you build a few building blocks and leave it there for long enough, it's going to be destroyed. The atmosphere itself destroys these building blocks. So just think about that. This is why um, um, George Wald, a leading evolutionary biologist, said in Scientific uh, American Journal magazine, he said, when it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities. Creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds, therefore we choose to believe the impossible. I love how honest this guy is. It's impossible, but we believe it. So I'm just going to leave that there. Evolution doesn't explain the emergence of life. But it gets worse. Two, Evolution doesn't explain all the fossil evidence. Now, this is maybe the most debated of these points, but I'm just going to try to explain it briefly. 
Because in Darwin's theory, it was a lot of time that happened so that these uh, different life forms could emerge and, and change and adapt from the single cell to Homo sapien, if you think we're at the top, right? Yeah, you can see that. But here's the problem with that. It doesn't explain the actual fossil evidence we see. What we see instead, especially at this area about 360, 500 million years ago, is what's called, I think the best example is the Cambrian explosion. That in a relatively short time period, 20 uh, of the first forms of animals emerge like that. They emerge from nowhere. There's no uh, animals before them that are kind of half animals or whatever. No, they just emerge out of nowhere. And, and it's not just this one example. Um, people like Eugene Kunin, who is a leading uh, evolutionary biologist today, he says, actually, we need to revise this gradual theory of progression that we used to have. And he, they call it now punctuated equilibrium, right? Because what he says is you actually see is a pattern of biological big bangs. That's the language he uses. Big bangs. Why? There's an explosion of life here, an explosion of life here, explosion of life here. It's not a gradual change. Now, there's a lot of different ways to explain away, but it, it's difficult to explain. It, it seems like, boom, life emerges. Boom, different types of life emerge. Boom. It's not this gradual progression over millions and billions of years. It doesn't match the fossil record. Stephen Jay Gould, um, the late evolutionary biologist, Harvard professor, said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the gradual transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. So evolution doesn't explain all the fossil evidence. Here's the third one. This one's complicated. So bear with me. Evolution doesn't explain irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Now, irreducible complexity, it means that something is so complicated that you cannot reduce it to its basic parts. I was thinking about it today as I was driving over here with the motor in my Jeep. Now, if you're a guy like me, when something sounds weird in your engine and it's not working, you pop the hood and you say, huh? Yeah. You pretend like you know what you're doing, but you have no clue, right? Anybody else? I'll, I'll admit it. I'm man enough to admit I don't, I'm not man enough for that motor. Okay, but I look at that, and, and just all the complicated parts, I don't even know what they all are, right? There's spark plugs, and there's engine, there's, you know, starting... Fl- okay, somebody can explain that better than I can. But all of these things have to be present for the motor to work. If you take out just one part, the whole thing is broken, right? You need all the parts assembled at the same time. Well, why it's irreducibly complex is because when we're talking about natural selection, is it, it needs to be a fully formed motor. All of the parts by themselves, why would you need them? Why would you evolve that? It's not survival of the fittest. You need all the parts assembled together in order for the motor to work. Now, if you think, well, that's kind of an extreme example, well, I want to show you um, this thing that uh, Michael Behe, uh, a biochemist, has made famous. It's called the bacterial flagellum. Now, this bacterial flagellum uh, is way zoomed in and, and magnified. It really is just 40 nanometers. Okay, it's tiny, 40 nanometers. But what you have here is a rotary engine with a whip-like tail that helps bacteria move along liquid. Okay? Very, this is at the simplest, simplest um, multicellular thing. Okay, this is the bacterial flagellum. See for a second how it works. I have this short little video. Oh, that video doesn't quite work, right? Okay. You see that, that bacterial flagellum working? And then you get a little closer and you realize, oh, 
It's actually a little more complicated than this, just this like whip-like thing flying out there. So let me tell you what it does. This tail turns at 100,000 RPM both directions, and it can flip in just a second. It can propel a bacteria 20 lengths a second. So if you were looking at a human being, this would be 81 miles an hour. This is fast. This thing can move. And within this is the machinery, I think we can call it pretty distinctly, of a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and the whip-like tail, right? I mean, some of you who are engineers could probably explain this better than I could, right? It seems at the simplest form of a bacteria that there is this mechanical operation going on. It's incredible. And the problem is there are 40 different complex proteins that make up this. If you take one of them away, the whole thing doesn't work. So just tell me the math of having to get all 40 at the same time naturally provided to create just this, 40 nanometers. And we know now that those 40 proteins are made up of DNA and you have to have the DNA and the RNA to tell the, the, the cell in order how to make that, which is even more complicated. Now we're not just talking about a motor, but what we're talking about is computer. Has anybody ever tried to code before? If you've ever tried and you get one thing wrong, the whole code doesn't work. And that's what we know with DNA and RNA is actually way more complex than code. Bill Gates, you heard of him? He said that DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. And even Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, said the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. This is irreducibly complex, and we can't explain it evolutionarily. We're talking about such fine-tuning, if we're going to use last week's phrase. And this is just a simple bacterial flagellum. In the human body, there are three billion base codes that all have to be ordered right in our DNA. Evolution doesn't explain or account for the irreducible complexity. And here's the fourth one. Evolution doesn't explain the uniqueness of the human mind. Now, I read a book for this series that was very much talking about the evolution of human homo sapiens, how we emerge from these hominoid hominid creatures some years ago that our most distant relative, they say, is the chimpanzee, right? We slowly, you know, got upright, right? Okay. So at first, people are shocked. Wow, look how closely we related are to the chimpanzees. You study them, look how close we are. But I don't think we should shock, be shocked by how similar we are to chimpanzees. I think we should be shocked by how different we are than chimpanzees. We all know it. We are so different from even the most intelligent creatures. Sure, they have emotions. Sure, they communicate. But not like we do. We have intelligence communication, that we can create things and build things, that we can make motors, though they fail <laughs> to even line up to the bacterial flagellum. They're pretty incredible, the things we create. And we know that these are intelligent processes who create these things. We are intelligent. We know we're intelligent. I, I think the best way to think about this, uh, it was from the old movie Planet of the Apes. Not the new one, the old one with Charlton Heston. Does anybody remember that? When he's captured on this planet that has been taken over by the apes, they think he as a human being is just an animal, right? And they're treating him like an animal and they're putting him into a cage and prodding him and, because they don't think he's intelligent, Right? They're intelligent apes, but he isn't. And, and, but do you know how they find out that he's intelligent? Get your hands off me, you darn dirty ape, right? You remember this line? Because he talks and he communicates. They freak out. What the heck? And we can communicate in complex thought, not like lion coming, 
which is what a monkey will yell or a chimpanzee will yell. Hey, there's some communication, but what we say is, hey, there's a line right over there. You want to climb up this tree because it's going to be tall enough, right? Hey, the coordination that we have, the communication we have is so complex. We know that the intelligence we have as human beings is so unique. And the mind itself cannot be explained by science. In fact, scientists now are trying to write, well, maybe there is no mind. What? We all know there's a mind. (laughs) We all know there's a mind. In fact... Um, there's, there's a quote from uh, Nikola Tesla, if I have that. Uh, that might be a little farther down. But Nikola Tesla said, The gift of mental power comes from God, and if we con- concentrate our minds on that truth, we become in tune with this great power. You know, I heard of Tesla? Great chemist. So what I think we can see here is that evolution has some big problems in the theory. Now, I'm not saying we should throw all of it out. We already can agree that some evolution happens. But what I can say is that evolution doesn't explain the emergence of life. It doesn't explain all the fossil evidence. It doesn't account for irreducible complexity. And it doesn't explain the uniqueness of the human mind. You put those all together and you say, well, maybe evolution doesn't explain away God. Maybe God isn't superfluous. And what is interesting now is that um, leading scientists like Stephen Meyer, and I'm going to give this book away tonight, in his book, Darwin's Doubt. It's a thick one, right? Somebody's going to read that and love it. Come back tonight if you want that book for free. They, they've said that now... So he's an intelligent design person, and I know that's like a bad word in the scientific community. But if you exclude all intelligent design and creationists, if you just look at the scientific community, biologists, one-third of them say that there are major problems with evolution. So if you think, oh, everybody believes that this can explain away God, no, it can't. In fact, there are major holes in this, and let's just be honest about it. Let's be honest about it. So, what do we do with that? I hope that today I have convinced you that evolutionary biology and in all of it doesn't account for those four major things, right? Well, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, I think there's a better explanation, and I think it's contained here in this book. I do, and I don't think at one point iota of a point it contradicts with what we know about the scientific world around us. I want to show you the first one. If, if we're talking about that problem with the emergence of life, if we're talking about the emergence of life, and that's the problem, if we can pull that up, that evolution doesn't explain the emergence of life, well, you know what could. Let me show you a verse from Genesis 1, verse 20. And God said, let the water team with living creatures. And God said, he spoke that there's this miraculous creation of living beings. Well, that makes sense. If something is supposed to emerge, there has to be a creator that can create it and set it forth. That seems to make sense. You know, this problem of the emergence of life is so complicated for scientists that they've even begun to say, well, maybe life didn't emerge here on this planet. This is one of the leading new theories. Um, Francis Crick, who famously was the guy who figured out the helical structure of Uh, DNA. His theory is called um, directed panspermia. Kids, you don't have to cover your ears. What that means, literally, this is what it says, that extraterrestrials shot rockets to our planet filled with the seeds of life. They shot it to all the planets in the known universe just to find one that might produce life. And that's why life has come. Because there are even major... um, Uh, mathematical problems with evolution. How could all these billions and trillions of things happen over just four and a half billion years on this planet? It doesn't make sense. So you have to believe in aliens to explain it away. 
And I'm not saying aliens aren't real. That's not the point of this. But what I'm saying is that what they're taking is something simple and making it more complex and even more crazy to believe. And then where did those aliens come from? If you're going to believe that intelligent beings from outside of our planet created life, it kind of sounds like God to me. But I'll leave it there. The second thing, well, what about the fossil record? Well, it seems like there's these different stages of life emerging. Doesn't that kind of sound like the Bible where it says, on this day God created the fish, then the birds, and then the animals, and then human beings? Well, there's these different points where God is creating different things. And, and you see these different stages if you read through Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're like, well, there isn't enough stages written down there. Yeah, but Genesis 1 takes one page in your Bible to explain four billion years you go with an older theory there's maybe a reason why not every stage of evolution is described or the emergence of different lights why we have these big bangs like eugene kunin the biologist talked about or look at verse 24 i love this i've read this so many times and never noticed it but in verse 24 it says and god said let the land produce living creatures he creates them and then he says let the land produce it i've never noticed that but he's saying hey the environment this is my theory the environment is going to help and shape and adapt those living creatures that I've already created. Fascinating, right? It's in the text. <laughs> Let the land produce. That even uh, the geographic differences like different islands are going to create different species. I think you could see that pretty clearly even here. But from their natural form, their natural kind, that was created by a divine being. Moving on with the irreducible complexity. Well, how do you explain that with God? Well, you have to explain it with a designer, right? There really is these molecular motors going on. You see something like this in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 1. So it says, so God created the great... Uh, I'm sorry. Are we on 21? Okay, no, this is right. I have it right. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. This is a phrase over and over again. It doesn't describe how many kinds. At max, there are maybe six or seven mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. But God just creates these things. He doesn't give the details of how many there are. But he says, I'm going to create these different forms. And from there, the irreducible forms, they become all these different other species. It seems to make sense with the text and with science, right? Or about the fourth one, the uniqueness of the human mind. On Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. There's a special divine act of creating the human being, which explains why we're different from every other creature on the planet. Interesting. All the problems that evolutionary theory has today actually has some explanation in this thousands of year old text. I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. If you're wondering about how this impacts us as human beings, you've got to come back next week. That's what next week's about, okay? But what I think here is not only does the Bible provide some explanations for things that evolution cannot explain, I actually think it's a better explanation. I think it's a better explanation, and here's why. Now, most people, when they hear things like what I've been saying, the accusation thrown, I've had it in conversation, thrown at me is, what you're talking about is a God of the gaps. Have you ever heard this? That there's these gaps in evolutionary theory, and you're saying God fills the gaps. We can't explain the emergence of life, boom, put God there. Can't explain the Cambrian explosion, put God there. It's a gap that we, in our knowledge, you put God there. That's the accusation. For one, what's so wrong with that? But two, what you're saying is the exact opposite. We can't explain it, but science someday will. It's a science of the gaps. Either way, you're filling in gaps. 
What I think we should do is fill in the gaps with the things that are the most logically and reasonably coherent. And that's why I would say it's probably a designer. It's probably a designer. We talked about it last week, but when you look at the bacterial flagellum, the motor that's created, it seems like someone is intelligent. When you look at the 3 billion gene sequence that is the human DNA, it seems like somebody was coding it. And that's why you would see some similarities between all biological life, because it was the same coder who created all of it. Seems to make sense, the best sense. And this is what we do with design. Because what I'm saying is that natural processes cannot explain all of life. And think about this. I think what people do, because it can't explain some of the things. It can explain the different beats on the finches. But here's the thing. If you were walking in the woods and you saw that up in, up in front of you there was these trees that had kind of collapsed because of the wind or some natural forces and they had fallen on some other ones and it seemed to make like a teepee. Like it was a little fort and almost looked like someone had created it. Maybe you've seen this when you've gone on a hike. You've seen it. And you could just imagine someone living in there. It's a house. Natural processes have created a house. Now that's a pretty good explanation, right? But now you walk down the streets of Stapleton and you see a five-bedroom house with 3,000 square feet, three and a half baths, a well-manicured lawn, painted, uh, a, a nice steeple, and that everything's at right angles. And you'd say, you know, if wind could explain that hut in the woods, I think natural processes can explain this house as well. It's absurd, right? On the other hand, you would say, actually, it was probably designed by someone. It's the most logical inference from what you see. So when we see the complexity of life, I think we can make the same conclusion. And it's why even people like Thomas Edison famously said, when you see everything that happens in the world of science and the working of the universe, you cannot deny there is a captain on the bridge. So my big idea for you today is that evolution, evolution is not enough, but God is. Evolution is not enough, but God is. Let's watch this video from Mike. So my name is Mike Rudy. Um, I have a PhD in toxicology. I'm currently doing a, a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Colorado, the medical campus. I decided to get into this field because uh, in high school, actually, actually maybe even earlier than that, uh, I remember taking a biology class and having a teacher tell me, like, you know, we evolved over the last 4.6 billion years, and um, that's just kind of a fact. Uh, and then at home, um, you know, of course, my parents are saying something different. Um, and it really got me kind of thinking about how these two ideas actually intermingle. Like, is evolution true? Is the Bible true? Is it some hybrid of the two? Should I throw out the Bible altogether? And actually, that kind of came to a head a little bit in college, um, where I was almost at the point where I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to really believe Christianity because, you know, I, you know, I kind of... I want to be consistent. I want to be logically consistent in my beliefs. Um, and that's when I really started delving into, okay, well, is evolution true? Uh, and what I found out is that actually at the deepest levels, um, it's very much in line with what we'd expect from a biblical perspective. We've got kind of this popular understanding of evolution. Um, and it certainly does happen. Evolution does happen. But it's the word itself is almost... Um, should have a different meaning than the way that we use it in everyday 
in the everyday world. Um, the everyday world is things like you know the evolution of car design or the evolution of this technology. You think of it as being you know things are getting better and they're getting faster and they're getting bigger and you know we're kind of this upward progress. But if you look at in the biological world how evolution is actually happening, it is always um, this mechanism that takes the simplest um, route to fix a problem and it always comes at it, it's always a simplistic way of doing it. Um, and so when I really began to understand the mechanism of how evolution actually works, it really kicks me in the butt. I found that when I really genuinely started, started pursuing truth, now I'm not talking just listening to what Wikipedia says or my neighbor said this, I'm talking about when I actually delved into what is the real evidence, it was logically, logically consistent really only with the Christian religion. It was kind of backwards, I feel like, from what a lot of people go through. It was actually the science that stuck first and began to realize this isn't a good enough explanation. What is a good explanation? And looking at some of the other religions and actually really reading my Bible and reading it thoroughly, uh, studying it, I had to realize that there are levels of depth in there that isn't matched by anything else. And in fact, the world around us really does suggest that that's that's the most logical conclusion, that what the Bible says is actually right. When you really delve into um, biology, you find that there is a lot of evidence that there is a creator. Um, there's definitely a creator. And it's funny because like the now popular scientific way of saying that there's a creator is to say, well, oh, we think aliens maybe did it. <laughs> but it's like you're taking something that you know, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on aliens or anything, but you're taking something and you're like, oh, well, I might as well say magical fairies did it, you know, but that's scientific, that's okay, because it's not God. I would say science and faith are absolutely compatible. Where does the evidence actually lie? It turns out it actually does lie in um, a belief in the Christian God. Okay, so you got questions for Mike? Come back tonight, send them in. Um, it, what's the most amazing thing is not that I, I think science points us to a creator, but that the Bible tells us that that creator came down to us to live among us and show us that this creator loves us so much that he would die for us to atone for our sins and give us a relationship with the God of the universe. And that's what we worship. Whether Whatever science we're studying today, and we were talking about this in this series, I hope that it drives you to further worship of a God who did something so complex and uh, unimaginable, and yet here we are. And that's who we're going to worship in this last song. Let's pray. Lord God, um, this has been a challenging message for me. I think for a lot of people here, I've probably offended a lot of people, but I pray that we wouldn't just be offended, but Lord God, we would be driven to truth because you are the God of truth. And there is no contradiction between you and the world you created. And I pray that we'd be able to see that, even if the details we say, I don't know. I pray that humbly we'd be able to come before you and say, God, you are the God who created the universe, who created me who loved me so much that you'd come down to live and die for me. For that reason, I will worship along with the rest of creation. Amen. Would you stay with us? God of creation There at the start Before the beginning of time Blessed out the wonder of life. 
Church, he blesses you go out this week. We'll see you next week. We love you.